The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're talking about how to keep the animals we have from going extinct, and how we might be able to bring back the ones that have already disappeared. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders, and with me is evolutionary biologist Beth Shapiro, whose research focuses on the genetics of Ice Age animals and plants. She is a professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at University of California, Santa Cruz, and a research associate of the Denver Museum of Natural History, and has been widely honored for her research. She's here to talk about her recent book, How to Clone a Mammoth, The Science of De-Extinction. Beth, great to have you here. Thanks for inviting me. Okay, so uh, because this is a complex topic and there are a lot of people from all different sorts of backgrounds talking about it, um, some of them not at all related to scientific fields, I thought it would be good for people to understand your expertise and how it fits in with the context of your book. Um, uh, Briefly, before we dive into de-extinction, can you share what your research focuses on and how that relates to de-extinction? Sure. So I'm an evolutionary biologist, but my research adds a temporal perspective to questions about how species and communities and populations evolve and change through time. So we go out into the field and we collect bones and teeth and hair and remains of all sorts of things that used to be alive. Maybe lived something up to around a million years ago. And we can extract whatever DNA remains in those preserved organisms, and then use that to actually trace evolutionary processes through time by comparing the DNA sequences that we get from these bones with each other and with sequences from living individuals. Okay, so... I'm going to get the mammoth out of the way right now, because it's obviously the title of your book, and it is the poster child when we talk about de-extinction. There are groups right now working on various parts of that project. Uh, But is the mammoth actually a good candidate for de-extinction? I don't know. I mean, I have uh, personal um, problems with bringing the mammoth back to life, but my personal challenges are all things that might be able to be overcome, but with technical solutions. Um, The mammoth is, I think the reason that people think mostly about bringing a mammoth back to life is because people are becoming more and more clear on the fact that we can't bring dinosaurs back to life. They're just too old. And if we can't bring dinosaurs back to life, then mammoths seem kind of like the next best thing. Um, Whether it's possible or not is still a big open question. From a technical perspective, there are some remaining challenges to bringing a mammoth back to life, but my personal problems with mammoth de-extinction are actually ethical. Um, Part of the de-extinction process, and it's only part of it, and I'm sure we'll we'll get to talking about all the different parts, is, is cloning, where you have to take a living organism and implant a developing embryo in that living organism and use that living organism as a surrogate host. In the case of mammoths, this would be an elephant. And right now, we have very little idea how to meet the physical and emotional needs of elephants in captive breeding environments. They struggle to survive. They become sick physically and psychologically. Um, they just don't, don't do well. And in, in my opinion, at this moment, um, we sh- really shouldn't be keeping elephants in captive breeding environments at all, much less using them in experiments to bringing a mammoth back to life. Now, I do have ethical objections to mammoth de-extinction, but the mammoth is in fact one of the species for which there is a potentially compelling ecological argument for bringing them back. And for this reason, I'm hopeful that there may be some point in future where there are technical solutions to these ethical challenges. Perhaps, for example, we could develop some technology that allows us to develop uh, animals to term without using an actual living, breathing organism. Um, Of course, there are other ethical challenges. They would have to be raised in captive breeding facilities. We'd need to make many of these animals. They have very long lifespans. But uh, there are many technical challenges that we can get into, of course. Um, But uh, yeah. So there's there's my my overview statement about mammoths. <laughs> so setting aside the mammoth specifically for a second, um, let's take a step back. What makes a good candidate for de-extinction? 
What that's reasons a, are there for bringing these animals back to life? That's a good question. And that is actually the question that all of the different groups that are contemplating or even in the early stages of working with bringing different species back to life um, or doing what's now called genetic rescue with different species are, are actually thinking about. And I think the answer is different for every species. To me, a compelling ecological reason or a compelling reason to bring something back to life is not going to be just to have it back or because we feel guilty because our ancestors, human ancestors, had played some role in causing them to go extinct in the first place, but that there are missing interactions in an ecosystem that are gone because that species is themselves gone. And that bringing this species back, or at least bringing back traits that belong to this species, perhaps embedded in living species, might actually help to restore those traits. And by restoring, sorry, restore those interactions. And, and by restoring ecological interactions, we can then protect ecosystems from change and potentially stop any additional biodiversity loss. To me, it's, it's these reasons, restoring interactions, that might actually make a difference in stopping extinctions from happening in the present day that are the most compelling reasons to consider species as candidates for de-extinction. So in your book, you highlight some key questions we should ask ourselves uh, or that you think we should ask ourselves when selecting species to bring back. Um, can you talk a little bit about what some of those key questions are and why you feel they need such careful consideration? Sure. Um, I can't really remember what order they were in, but I can uh, I can go through a little bit of them at a time. I think a very important question to ask is, do we know why the species went extinct in the first place? And if so, have we corrected whatever problem it was that caused them to go extinct? This is pretty critical because if we don't actually know why they went extinct, then maybe if we were to bring them back and release them into the wild, they would just go extinct again. And that wouldn't really do anybody any good. Um, another really important question that I think deserves a lot of attention and is starting to get a lot of attention is, is there actually a place where these species could be released, where their release into the environment isn't going to cause more uh, negative problems, more problems for species that are alive today than not having them there is causing? Um, the ecosystem of ecosystems of this planet are dynamic, and it's not as if a species goes extinct and then everything stays absolutely stationary with this gaping hole that this species once filled, where we could just slot this guy back in if he were brought back to life. In Immediately after an extinction, everything will start to change. Everything changes while everything is alive. And these um, the ecosystems have might have evolved to the point where other species have come in to fill the niche of the extinct species, or, or um, the entire community has changed to an extent that there really isn't room for that extinct species anymore. If there's not a place to put them, if we were to bring them back, then that's also a pretty compelling reason that it isn't a good candidate for de-extinction. I think one of the the species that um, that we have been involved with working on, the, the passenger pigeon, and this is a project that is run by someone who's working in my lab called Ben Novak, who's also working for an organization called Revive and Restore, which is run by Ryan Phelan and Stuart Brand out of San Francisco. Um, they're very interested in exploring the possibility of bringing passenger pigeons back. Passenger pigeons have been extinct for 100 years. They used to flock in potentially billions of individuals across the northeastern part of North America. I think that a big open question that needs to be resolved as part of this project is, where would they go? What kind of impact did these animals have on the landscape? Do they require very large forests? Is, is, is there a place where if we were to bring them back, we could actually release them where they wouldn't do more damage than good? And this is one of the questions that we with Ben and Revive and Restore are working to try to get an answer to, uh, while at the same time, we're very much in the early stages of any technology that would be required to bring birds back to life or to do genome engineering and genetic rescue with birds. So these are all different aspects of this project that are being considered all at the same time. You're tuned into Science for the People. And today we are talking about the details of de-extinction with evolutionary biologist and author Beth Shapiro, who is here with me talking about her book. How to Clone a Mammoth, The Science of De-Extinction. Maybe let's walk through the de-extinction process. What comes first, second, third? 
So when most people think about de-extinction or bringing an animal back to life that is gone, the first thing that comes to mind is the idea of cloning. And uh, cloning is actually a very specific scientific technique. It's the technique that was used by the Roslin Institute in the mid-1990s to bring Dolly the sheep back to life. Um, What they did there was they took a type of cell Um, Our bodies basically have two types of cells. We have germ cells that are sperm and eggs and somatic cells, which are everything else. Um, Every somatic cell has a pretty strict set of instructions about which genes to turn on and turn off and how much to turn these genes on to make that cell look and act like that cell. So heart cells and skin cells and hair cells all have different sets of instructions about which genes are on and off, but they're all different types of somatic cells. The key to cloning, this scientific technology known as cloning, is actually called somatic cell nuclear transfer. The idea is to take one of these somatic cells and to trick it into forgetting all of the specific instructions that it's acquired to be that type of somatic cell and revert to some earlier state where it has the capacity, like embryonic cells do, to become every type of cell that makes up a whole organism. So the way cloning works is you take a somatic cell and you put it in a dish in a lab and stress it out, starve it of nutrients. At the same time, you can take an egg cell from a a, a donor, a female donor of that same species, and you remove the genetic material from that egg cell, the genetic material that would fuse with the genetic material from a sperm to create an organism under normal circumstances. And then you can uh, stick this somatic cell that's stressed out next to this empty egg cell and zap it with a bit of electricity. The membrane around the cell will pop open and the genetic material from that somatic cell will dump into that empty egg cell. And the proteins in that egg cell will then cause that somatic cell to do that magical thing, to revert to that point where it forgets all the instructions to be a heart cell or a skin cell or whatever type of somatic cell it is, and goes back to becoming an embryonic cell, a cell that has the capacity to then start to develop and become every type of organism. So in Dolly the sheep, they took a mammary cell, a type of somatic cell, uh, and an egg cell from a different breed of sheep. Um, They eventually did this to several hundred, they tried this several hundred different times in one particular situation, one circumstance, they got one of these egg cells that had a somatic cell inserted into it and reverted and started to develop into an embryo to then be implanted into a surrogate host and be born as a genetic clone of the donor of the somatic cell and not of the egg cell or the surrogate host. So that's cloning. That is how cloning works. The reason that cloning is going to be a challenge whenever there is an extinct species involved is that you have to start with a living somatic cell. And once an organism is dead and has been for a long time, there will be no living somatic cells. So we can't start by cloning. And this is uh, one of the key challenges in de-extinction. So instead of starting by cloning a living somatic cell, instead, what one would have to do would be to figure out how to edit a living somatic cell of, say, an Asian elephant so that it looks like a genome sequence that might have belonged to a mammoth. And then you have a living somatic cell that you could use to clone. So this is pretty tricky technology. Okay, so we can't clone, uh, we can't start with cloning an animal. So what is the first step? So if we think just about the mammoth, what we now have are an incredible set of genomic resources. Recently, several different complete genome sequences from mammoths, woolly mammoths, were published. These were generated by extracting DNA from bones. And the DNA that we extract from bones is all broken into tiny little fragments, and it's damaged to an extent like all ancient DNA is damaged. UV radiation and and, uh, microbes that live in the soil will all chop up the DNA that's preserved in a bone. But we can still extract that DNA and then um, use the DNA that we can get out of those bones to painstakingly piece together one tiny piece at a time what probably is a mammoth genome sequence. And now we have a couple of those. We have a couple of Asian elephant genome sequences that have been assembled and we can start to compare them and just look at these lists of genes that are in Asian elephant genomes and in mammoth genomes and, and come up with genes that are different. 
And we can start to write down which genes are different between an Asian elephant and a mammoth. And then we can use new genome editing technology to go into elephant cells that are living in a dish in a lab and actually cut and paste our way from an Asian elephant genome to a mammoth genome. It's pretty spectacular. Uh, this technology, the technology that's probably going to be used to do this, this is the technology that George Church's lab at Harvard has been using, is called CRISPR-Cas9 editing. If, if you imagine that uh, you have a little robot that's capable of being programmed to go to a very specific place in the genome, so the elephant genome is a little over 4 billion letters long, we can tell one of these little CRISPR-Cas9 uh, robots, they're not really robots, but let's call them that for the sake of analogy here, um, to go to a very specific place in those 4 billion letters and find it, grab a hold of it, and cut it out. And then the cell has this, its own machinery that's involved to be able to fix this type of damage that happens to a cell. Um, in, in normal life, where you're not trying to edit genomes, there are things that will damage our DNA. Solar radiation, when we're alive, just like when a bone is buried in the ground, will chop up the DNA in different ways. And cells don't like their DNA to be broken, so evolution has created a couple different mechanisms to fix this. At this point in the cut-and-paste process, we harness evolution's own ways of fixing cuts to DNA sequences and stick or paste in where that elephant version of the genome used to gene used to be the mammoth version of that gene which we've synthesized in the lab and inserted into the cell along with this CRISPR-Cas9 molecule. It's very cool, very powerful technology for being able to change the elephant genome a little bit at a time to look more and more like a mammoth genome. So when we're talking about this process, it seems like we're not really taking something that was and bringing it back. It sounds a lot like we're creating some sort of hybrid, at least creating something new. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, there really, there probably isn't a way to bring something back that's 100% identical to something that is extinct. Um, we might be able to uh, create an elephant cell that contains a genome that is 100% identical to a mammoth genome. Um, Asian elephants and woolly mammoths were very closely related to each other. An Asian elephant genome is already 99% identical to a mammoth genome. So we only really have to change around 1% to create a genome sequence that's 100% identical. But we know that organisms are more than just the sequence of their DNA, that we're a combination of our DNA code and the environment in which we live and experiences that we have. And we can't really replicate that environment or those experiences if we're using an elephant mom and an elephant surrogate family and an elephant environment to bring up a mammoth. But what I would argue, and I think this is the same that most people who are in favor of de-extinction of different species would argue, is that it doesn't really matter that the thing we're bringing back isn't 100% identical to the thing that was, as long as what we're doing is restoring those interactions, those ecological interactions on the landscape that are missing, that have been gone since this species went extinct. I've already said that I have kind of ethical problems with bringing a mammoth back to life. But let's say we come up with technical solutions and, and the ethics are no longer a problem. We know from some of the work that Sergei Zimov, uh, who's a Russian Academy of Sciences uh, scientist who works up in Chersky in northeastern Siberia, um, he has been buying up land around his home in northeastern Siberia since the mid-1990s and creating this landscape that he's called Pleistocene Park. And uh, he's preparing Pleistocene park in a way for the reintroduction of mammoths and he believes that this is really important to reestablishing the type of habitat that used to be uh, that Siberia used to be made up of during the ice ages. So, so far he obviously doesn't have mammoths in Pleistocene Park but he does have uh, bison from Canada uh, wild horses and about five different species of deer and he's been doing some experiments with these animals in Pleistocene Park where he fences in parts of the park and allows them to graze and fences other parts of the park where he doesn't allow them to graze and then compares what happens where he does have these grazing animals and with where 
he doesn't have them. And he's seen that over the course of only a few seasons, that just the presence of these herbivores wandering around on the grasslands, churning the soil, redistributing nutrients and seeds, this has been sufficient to reestablish this rich tundra grassland that used to be there, that used to feed this huge diversity of grazing animals during the last ice ages, during the Pleistocene, like his Pleistocene Park. And he argues that having these large grazing herbivores on the landscape, like a mammoth, is actually fundamental, really a key part of establishing this grassland. And one of the coolest things that he's observed is that it's not only that the grassland that he's established is now sufficient to feed the animals that are already there, but that other species that live in Siberia but are threatened with extinction because they don't really have enough habitat to survive, like saiga antelopes, have started visiting his park to eat the grasslands. And that by establishing, by reestablishing these interactions between herbivores and the grassland, he's actually providing, recreating this rich habitat for species that could be essential to preserving these species today. This is Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders, and with me is Beth Shapiro, Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and author of the book, How to Clone a Mammoth, The Science of De-Extinction. So if when we're talking about the goals of de-extinction, it's about bringing back traits, not necessarily specific animals, um, but traits and interactions in the ecology, can't we do the same thing with traditional selective breeding techniques? We could, yes. And there's a group of people in from the Netherlands that are working hard to use traditional selection, they're calling it backbreeding, to bring the auroch back to life. The auroch is the wild ancestor of domestic cows. And they argue that the auroch had a particular and important role in the landscape, and that by reestablishing this animal on the landscape, they can help to recreate some of the wild habitat that used to exist in Europe. And the way that they're doing this is they are taking cattle that look and act the way they believe auroch looked and acted and breeding them together. And then they choose the offspring of those crosses that look and act more like aurochs and, and slowly and gradually are creating animals that look more like this thing that used to exist. Uh, the reason that using genetic and genome editing to do this might be a better approach than using traditional backbreeding. There, there are actually two reasons. The first is, is just speed, right? Um, if we are directly editing the genome, we know that all of the offspring that result from that genome editing experiment will contain the specific mutations that we're after, rather than a random assortment of them that may or may not happen, which is what happens with normal breeding. So we can actually make these traits evolve or create these traits in these populations more quickly. The second is that if you're just using backbreeding and you breed two species of cattle together and in the end what you get are slightly backward-facing or slightly forward-facing horns, you don't know if the genetic changes that are leading to this phenotypic change, the physical appearance of um, something that looks similar to the auroch, is actually the same thing that existed in the auroch. And because genes in the genome don't act in isolation, but again, act with all the other genes that are in the genome, we don't know what the implications of changing some other gene or some suite of genes that we don't really understand might be for the rest of that organism. At least by directly editing a genome, we can we actually know which genetic changes are being made that's not an argument against using traditional selection it's just an argument that says if we are wanting to use this technology as a means to do genetic rescue to edit populations that are alive today in some way that might help them survive an impending crisis, whether it's climate change or loss of habitat or etc., that we probably want to do it as quickly and efficiently as we can. Okay, so after we have a cut and paste mammoth, um, what's the next step? I, I think this is where cloning actually comes into the process. 
Right. So, so there is uh, right now some of the work that's being done at George Church's lab in Harvard. They've actually used this technology to swap out 14 different genes. Um, they were focusing on genes that have something to do with the ability to live in cold places. So the common ancestor of an Asian elephant and a woolly mammoth lived somewhere between three and five million years ago. It was probably tropically adapted. So the woolly mammoth has genetic changes that have allowed it to survive in colder places. So the genes that George Church's lab group have been swapping out have been associated with uh, things like uh, being hairier or thicker subcutaneous fat or uh, red blood cells that are more efficient at carrying oxygen around the body in places when it's cold. All things that would help a tropically adapted elephant survive somewhere where it's cold. So what they have now are cells growing in a dish in a lab that are a very tiny proportion mammoth DNA and the capacity then to go on to the next step. So the next step, yes, would be cloning. Take those cells and cause them to revert to this form, an embryonic form, where they can transform and start to divide and become every type of cell in a body, and then uh, implant a developing embryo into a surrogate host and allow that surrogate host to continue through the pregnancy and eventually give birth to a healthy animal that would be a genetic hybrid between an elephant and a mammoth, and then uh, have this animal grow in the case of mammoths, you know, this is part of where some of my ethical problems come in here. We would have to do this many times. Uh, we know that elephants live in age and sex-structured populations. It's not as if we could make one hybrid animal and release that animal alone into the Siberian landscape. Um, but assuming that we were able to get this far and do this over the course of many decades and come up with an age and sex-structured population, then the idea would be to release this population into somewhere like a uh, Gazimov's Pleistocene Park. There are many technical challenges in that suite of steps that I just outlined that we have not yet been able to come up with solutions for. Um, uh, as far as I know, it's been very hard to do uh, in vitro fertilization and um, uh, that sort of reproductive work with elephants in captivity. This could be a major, is, is a major barrier to uh, moving along with mammoth de-extinction. Um, there are other species where this is probably less of a barrier. There's a fantastic de-extinction project, really exciting de-extinction project going on in northern Spain right now with the Bucardo. You familiar with this one? Yeah, a little bit. So this is a, a, an ibex, a type of mountain goat that went extinct in the early 2000s. And before the Bucardo went extinct, the scientists, it's a team of Spanish and French scientists who were working on this project, managed to capture the last living individual, a female named Celia. And while she was alive, they took some tissue and were able to harvest these cells and grow them up in culture in a lab. So they have living cells from a Bucardo, even though the Bucardo is now extinct. So we don't have to go through any genome editing. In the case of the Bucardo, um, what they did have to do was figure out how to how to do IVF and assisted reproduction in mountain goats. And this was not an easy thing for them. They worked very hard over the course of nearly a decade and finally were able to to they have a um, they were able to use a domestic goat, a hybrid between a domestic goat and another subspecies of mountain goat as a surrogate host to uh, to grow, to develop um, to carry a developing embryo of a Bucardo that would be a genetic clone to this last living individual, Celia, to term. Um, the Bucardo was born and it died, unfortunately, within 10 minutes of being born because it had a, a major lung deformity. Now, it is not known whether or not this lung deformity had anything to do with the cloning process itself. Certainly, cloning like this has been used successfully in lots of different species. So it, it's doubtful that it is simply the cloning process that led to this deformity. It could just be something that some Sometimes happens, and they were very unfortunate in this particular situation. And I know this team is very hopeful that they can return to these cells and try again to bring the Bucardo back to life. I think this is probably the project that is most close to success as far as de-extinction. You're listening to Science for the People, and today we're talking about the new book, How to Clone a Mammoth, The Science of De-Extinction, with author and evolutionary biologist Beth Shapiro. Okay, so if we can surmount the technical challenges of actually getting a living, breathing animal, a mammoth or an ibex, back to life, um, most people would consider that job done. 
Um, but one animal back to life does not a de-extinction make. There are, this is just the beginning of, it seems, a lot of the challenges that we're going to face in repopulating some of these creatures, if that is in fact the, the goal. That's right. And again, uh, the different challenges, and this ranges from technical to ethical to ecological, uh, are going to vary and be of different states of doable today and tomorrow and 10 years from now, no matter what species we're talking about. Uh, We've talked so far a lot about uh, mammals where we can use cloning, this process of somatic cell nuclear transfer that was developed by the Roslyn Institute in Scotland in the mid-1990s. But if we're thinking about bringing birds back to life, now here we have an entire new technical problem because we can't actually clone birds. And so we would need an entirely different approach to bringing these guys back to life. Um, and, and fortunately, there is some really fascinating work being done in genome editing and genome modification of birds. And this is, again, by people from the Roslyn Institute. And there are other groups working on this as well. But it's it's absolutely fascinating. So um, the reason that we can't clone using somatic cell nuclear transfer birds is that we don't have access to the bird egg, the bird egg cell at a state where we could remove the nucleus when the egg is primed for reproduction. So this is a key part in somatic cell nuclear transfer is we get an egg that's ready to be fertilized and suck out the nuclear material. This is one of the first steps in somatic cell nuclear transfer cloning because we would then use that egg that's primed to become an entire individual to to transform that somatic cell that's transferred into an embryonic cell that's capable of doing that we can't do that with birds we can't we can't actually get the egg at that stage uh, in in chickens, what happens is the egg is released from the ovaries and is almost immediately fertilized and then spends about a day, about 24 hours, bouncing through the this kind of windy uh, internal reproductive structure of birds and at the, all the time forming what we what we see if you crack open an egg. You see the egg white and the, the, the kind of fibrous part of the egg white that keeps the yolk in the right position in the center of the egg and finally the actual shell of the egg. When that egg is laid, the embryo is actually in quite an advanced state of development and certainly not at a state where we could then remove it from the egg and insert an equally advanced and genetically edited developing embryo. So it's kind of tricky here. But what scientists have discovered is that when the egg is laid, it is possible to stick a needle into that egg without disrupting it in a way that would kill the developing embryo and suck out some of the cells that are called primordial germ cells. These are cells that are not yet germ cells, sperm or eggs, but are on their way, migrating around the outside of the embryo, eventually finding what is to become the gonads in that bird. You can you can stick in a needle and suck a few of those out and then put them in a dish in a lab. And you can edit those primordial germ cells. You can use that cut-and-paste technology, CRISPR, Cas9, or other genome editing technologies to edit the genomes that are in those cells that are going to go on to become sperm and eggs. And then you can take those edited uh, primordial germ cells and inject them into another egg that's recently been laid. And those edited germ cells will migrate around the outside of the embryo with that embryo's own germ cells and establish themselves in the developing gonads. And the chick that is born from that egg will be totally normal, absolutely normal and not edited at all. But it will have sperm or eggs that are edited. And the next generation that is born, if that next generation is born using those edited sperm or eggs, will itself be genetically modified. So this is the strategy that one would have to use to create genetically modified birds, <laughs> which is very different from the strategy that would be used to create genetically modified mammals. What about environmental triggers and how that might impact the way an embryo or a young animal sort of grows in its environment? Sure. So we're, we're really only at the cusp of coming to, to grips with how important environment is in, in determining what genes are turned 
turned on and off and and when in in development these genes are turned on and off for example what would the effect of a developing elephant embryo that had um, a suite of mammoth genes cut and pasted into its genome but developing inside the uterus of an elephant mom be how would the exposure to the elephant hormones or the elephant diet affect the way those genes are turned on and off these things known as epigenetic processes what would the effect of being born to an elephant and raised by elephants and eating an elephant diet be we know for example that uh, elephants will often eat the poo of their mom just after they're born to establish the community of bacteria that live in their guts their microbiome that is important to being able to break down their diet and again we're really just beginning to understand how important our microbiomes are into making us look and act the way we do. Um, we, again, just don't know what the consequences of this different developmental environment would be. And it just gets back to that the thing that we're creating is not going to be 100% identical to the thing that used to be alive. But again, I'm not sure it matters. Um, if we have an organism that is more elephant-like when it's born because the first one develops within an M within a mammoth, an elephant, sorry, and is born to elephants and, and lived in a captive breeding facility, eventually, we hope, we will have enough individuals that we could release them into Pleistocene Park in Siberia, in which case they will start being exposed to more and more of an environment that's similar to what mammoths were exposed to. And if this means that gradually the epigenetic component of this looks more and more mammoth-like, then we will get there, but it will take time. Um, what will the effect be? The effect will be that it's not identical to the thing that wasn't alive. But again, I don't think that's critical to establishing or re-establishing these interactions. We're almost out of time, but before we go, there is a lot of polarization when we talk about de-extinction. And part of that is from the idea of cloning, but I think part of it is around the idea of de-extinction itself, uh, which you do address in the book. Um, why is this idea so politically fraught? Well, I, there are a lot of reasons that people are, are nervous about technology like this. And, and all of these reasons are perfectly justified. I mean, this is a, a type of technology that's new, and all new technologies are risky and scary. Um, I do argue, and I feel strongly, that uh, we are at a point in, in our lives, in the life of this planet, as far as extinction and biodiversity crises are concerned, where we really should be willing to start to take some more carefully evaluated and, and, and carefully thought through risks if we are going to try to make a difference and stop the extinction crisis that is ongoing today. Um, my argument in the end from this book is, is not that the best use of this technology is just to bring extinct species back to life, but that this technology is potentially an incredibly powerful new weapon in what could be a growing arsenal against extinction, that we could use this technology not just to bring extinct species back to life, but to edit the genomes of living species, either using traits from things that used to be alive or using traits that that are that that from different different species. So for example, editing elephants that they contain some mammoth genes and can therefore live in colder environments. But editing species that are still alive by reintroducing diversity that used to be in that species but might have disappeared because of recent population declines as a way of of trying to provide a new diversity, new new potential defenses against extinction for species that are in danger today. Uh, that this, this, to save living species and to reestablish connections in existing habitats, this is the potentially really powerful and important use of this technology and should be definitely worth the risk of using kind of technology that is new and kind of scary. Um, there are other other challenges people have with this. And one of the most common concerns that I hear is about money, that this is obviously something that's expensive. And uh, my argument for some time has been that there's there's actually not that much money that's going into de-extinction itself. And, and while this is true, it's also clear that if this technology is going to become something that's useful as a weapon against the extinction crisis of the present day, it's going to have to have money invested into it. But 
But it's also not a zero-sum game. It's not as if money that's invested into developing this technology is money that's going to be rooted from other existing and established conservation practices. Um, people who give money to conservation generally care about very much about whatever issue they're donating to. You can't convince someone who's giving money to save the panda that they should invest in saving a polar bear, for example. And it's hard to imagine that someone who's very interested in restoring islands or clearing away invasive species from different habitats is the same person who's going to invest in developing technology to genetically engineer species. Um, in, in fact, our hope is that this will actually um, bring new money into conservation, maybe from people who are tech tech savvy or, or excited about technical solutions to something that where there haven't really been any technology based or biotechnology based solutions before. Um, so I would argue that yes, de-extinction is potentially something that's very expensive, but any money that's spent on developing this technology benefits conservation and benefits evolutionary research in a way that other money might not. Beth, I wish I had more time because we didn't even get to talk about the idea of uh, de-extincted species being classified under GMOs and how that might <laughs> affect their standing as potentially endangered species. There, right. That's a whole can of worms that we just don't have time to open. But Well, um, quickly, I could say that they, they probably wouldn't be classified as GMOs because most countries, uh, the US and Canada included, only classify things as genetically modified organisms if their sole purpose of being created is to be used as food or drugs. And unless we run to bring back passenger pigeons only so that they could be canned and sold as food commodities, they would mostly fall under the, the remit of, uh, of environmental laws, endangered species laws, instead of as genetically modified organisms. But you're right, this is an entirely different can of worms. <laughs> and also about the whole species versus subspecies and how something A, qualifies as a species and B, whether or not it's an endangered species once we bring it back, if it's a subspecies. It, it's, there's lots of lo mental loops that you sort of have to jump through there. <laughs> the species concept is something we can't even really wrap our heads around when we're talking about living species. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Beth, it's a really fantastic book. Um, thank you so much for coming by the show. Thanks for having me. If you want to find out more about Beth Shapiro's work or her book, How to Clone a Mammoth, The Science of De-Extinction, we have links to both on our website, which is Science for the people.ca. Next up after the break, we'll talk to Emeritus Professor Richard Frankham about genetic rescue conservation strategies. Stay tuned. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. With me is Richard Frankham, Emeritus Professor who shares his time between Macquarie University and the Australian Museum. He's one of the leading international figures in conservation genetics, having been a pioneer researcher in the discipline. Throughout his career, he has worked on genetic impacts of small population sizes, on genetic diversity, reproductive fitness, and the ability of populations to respond to selection in the context of conservation, evolutionary genetics, and breeding. Dick, welcome to the show. Thank you, Rochelle. So, uh, what is genetic rescue? Genetic rescue is the use of genetics to overcome problems in small inbred populations with low genetic diversity. Those populations typically have their reproductive fitness, that's reproduction and survival, reduced and if nothing is done and their ability to evolve is also compromised, so if climate change happens, then they're poorly positioned to deal with it. Um, and what we know from genetic theory is if we outcross them to another population within the same species, we can reverse the inbreeding that they're suffering as well as increase the genetic diversity. And in most cases, that leads to increased reproductive fitness and also to increased ability to evolve. So you, have, you now give them a chance to be able to survive in their own right. 
Okay, so at what point does genetic diversity start to become a concern? Um, at what population sizes does this become problematic? It depends on how small for how long. A population with only a pair each generation at the extreme end for a, 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 an animal, then it very quickly becomes inbred and you lose most of your populations fairly quickly. Uh, if you went for 20 generations like that, you'd lose between 95 and 100% of all your little populations. But you can achieve the same thing with modest-sized populations but for more generations. If your population was size 50 genetic and, and there's a special form of population that determines this, then after about 50 generations at that size, they'll be highly inbred, uh, more than a number of generations of brother-sister mating. Let's talk about how this sort of works in practice. When we talk about genetic rescue, we're actually talking about bringing another sort of a related animal in and doing some crossbreeding between these two species? Is that basically what we're talking about? Yes, the same thing applies to plants as well. The biggest threat to biodiversity on the planet is loss of habitat and its fragmentation. So in the course of that, you reduce the population size of the species, but you also end up with populations that are genetically isolated from all other populations of that species. And so their size is the local size, not the species size. And so they rapidly become inbred. And if you do nothing, then for genetic and or other reasons, they are likely to go extinct. And there's just probably millions of such populations on the planet that are being left and not rescued. And it's a preventable problem that can reduce population extinction rate by this outcrossing uh, and then, in the longer term, reduce species extinction rates. So in what situation would we use genetic rescue? Can you give us maybe an example of an actual use case? First, an animal, and it's the Florida panther. The Florida panthers are one of the... Uh, cougars, panthers, mountain lions, they're all the same, basically the same thing. Uh, and the ones in North America uh, are all similar. But the Florida ones are isolated. They were once connected, certainly, to, to Texas. And they got down to certainly no more than 20 or 30 individuals. Uh, their reproduction rate declined. Uh, their susceptibility to disease declined. They even ended up with a nasty disease that's um, likely genetic in origin, and that is undescended testes. And so the, this uh, sperm was lousy as well. Um, after much analysis and uh, discussion, uh, it was considered that they were unlikely to survive on their own, that, that their problem was mainly genetical. And the decision was made to introduce eight females from Texas, a population that, with which they'd once been connected but were no longer. And that's been done and the reproduction rate went up quite remarkably uh, and the population size has risen, so the survival is better, the reproduction rate is better, the sperm is better. Um, and they also have spread uh, in southern Florida to areas which they hadn't been for a, for a long while. So that's one. So to take a, a bird, there's the Illinois population of the greater prairie chicken. This is these uh, birds that get on a, where the males lek. Uh, so they make a display and try and attract females to mate with. Uh, but they're mostly on the ground and I think they're ground nesting. Uh, that population got down to small numbers again and the fertility of um, mated individuals went down, the hatchability went down and the population continued to decline. Um, genetically, they were found to have reduced genetic diversity which in that situation relates to more being more inbred. And 
They even tried habitat restoration and it didn't work. So there were other populations from which they're isolated that were bigger and healthier in Nebraska and uh, Kansas and uh, oh, another state. And so they introduced birds from there and the population uh, the fertility and hatchability has gone up and the population is growing again. Uh, so that's rescued. Um, there's a wolf population on uh, Ile Royale in Lake Superior. That's, this has happened, this, rest, this small population was isolated and got highly inbred, but the, the rescue there was natural in a cold winter. Um, a male got onto the island again and it's been rescued but the population is small so it quickly gets inbred again. And there are plant examples as well. So uh, when we're talking about a population that has, um, that has be the population size has become small, um, usually there's an external factor. And I'm thinking, it seems like in most of these cases, uh, there's a limited habitat that has caused, or at least is an underlying cause of these populations shrinking. So when we, when we go to genetic rescue, I guess my question is, does it solve the problem or is it just sort of sustaining the population until we can fix the broader problem, which is the habitat loss? It depends on how much habitat is available. Uh, what you can do is increase their reproduction and survival rate, which means that they, if, if they've been declining – they may now be able to grow. If there's more habitat they can spread into, they can solve the problem. But if they remain small, it will be a temporary release from uh, problems of inbreeding and loss of genetic diversity. Uh, so the one in, on Ile, Ile Royale, the grey wolves there, uh, because everyone became quickly related to one introduced male, he, in fact, contributed over 50% of all the genes in the population because not only did he mate to every female, but then he had offspring that were highly uh, effective reproductively. But what is happening is the population is quickly becoming inbred again. Um, and it likely, in the past, there were previous events. This population didn't have problems like the testes one, but they have... Uh, very bad skeletal problems before they, they were rescued. If you can keep the population connected by low-level immigration, either every generation or every few generations, then you're going to keep that population going, all else being equal. Um, but if you leave it uh, to just get more and more inbred, it can go extinct for genetic reasons, um, but the smaller it gets, the more it will be susceptible to other uh, problems, uh, catastrophes, and uh, demographic just fluctuations in population size. So for some of the populations where we have had genetic rescue strategies, are these strategies sort of ongoing for long periods of time where we're going to have to keep introducing outside genes, essentially, to keep the genetic diversity up? Or at some point, do these populations become self-sustaining? If the population can increase in size, it can become self-sustaining. If it remains small, particularly we're talking about populations of 100 and, and below, uh, it will require further events in the future. Uh, the other way of dealing with it, of course, is not to move animals, but to build corridors. Um, so in the uh, golden lion tamarins in South America, uh, they have a fragmented distribution and they have deliberately built some habitat corridors to connect small populations. Uh, it's too, too soon, in fact, they're still building them, uh, too soon to know how effective this is, is in long term. How closely related does the introduce, do the introduced members have to be to the population you're trying to rescue? Um, how far removed genetically can they be before we start to introduce potential problems? Uh, that has been one of the major issues. 
there's only been about 30, less than 30 cases of genetic rescue done for all species across the planet. And one of the reasons has been a, a, a risk that crossing is deleterious, which is called outbreeding depression. And this is typically associated with populations that are either different species or diverging towards speciation. The important point about that is that we know pretty much what causes that. And one of my uh, previous papers uh, with a group of colleagues was in predicting the risk of outbreeding depression. Now, the things that are predominantly associated with it are things that are either distinct species already or have fixed chromosomal differences. So they may have either differences in chromosome number, such as plants where one maybe uh, is a diploid like us with two doses of each chromosome and another is a tetraploid with four doses. You cross those, you get sterile offspring. There are other chromosomal differences where pieces of DNA are moved from one chromosome to another or changed in order in the chromosome. So that's one of the predictors. The other thing is, as you might expect, adaptation to different environments. So things that come from different environments adapt to them, and if you cross them, then those crosses are likely to be deleterious to uh, a degree that depends on how long they've been adapting and how different the environments are. So is the difference of environment as important when trying to find a good match as how, I guess, how long they've been parted? <laughs> uh, it's, it's likely, well, it's a combination, but if they've been apart for long periods of time in the same environment, then they're probably all right. But in different environments, um, this outbreeding depression starts... Uh, the first signs of it, according to a meta-analysis, uh, are detected within about a dozen of generations, and the further you go, the longer. Alternatively, you have populations in uh, of three-spined stickleback fish in British Columbia in, that are in lakes that were uh, isolated from the sea uh, with changes in sea level, and in different lakes things in similar environments, um, I think it's 600, is it 600 generations? Um, it may be 6,000 generations actually, um, are still perfectly fertile in crosses. So that's a case where things have been in different environments for a long period of time, and yet uh, you can cross them perfectly well. So have there been examples of genetic rescue where things haven't worked out well, where we've had some outbreeding depression take place, and we've actually caused fewer, caused the population to drop even farther? There have been cases of crossing for conservation purposes. Um, the most notorious one is for ibex in the old Czechoslovakia and in the Tatra Mountains there were populations and this is a, um, a native goat and the hunters liked them. They were depressed by hunting. And so they were augmented initially with animals from Austria, from a similar environment, and that worked all right until the hunters again depleted them. The next time around, there were animals brought in from Turkey and Sinai, and particularly imagine the, the climate of Sinai versus a uh, northern mountain area. It would be like the, the Rocky Mountain habitat in Alberta and the second time round it was a disaster because the animals brought in uh, after doing that uh, the, the crossed animals dropped their offspring in the middle of the harsh northern winter and it went extinct again so uh, I wouldn't call that a genetic rescue because it was done in considerable ignorance of genetic issues, but it was a conservation attempt, a conservation attempt to augment a population. There was a, a recent paper out that proposed that genetic rescue was being underutilized. Um, do you agree with that in general? Uh, very much so. Um, 
It's so much so that there's a group of eight of us writing two books on genetic management of fragmented animal and plant populations. Uh, the first will be an advanced textbook and the second a practical guide, and we're writing that for Oxford University Press. And that's because we all believe that uh, this issue of managing fragmented populations is being very poorly done. In my view, and I've said this in print, it's one of the most important, largely unaddressed issues in all of conservation biology. Uh, so, uh, yes, I agree, but the two things that have made it possible to move this argument on, one is to have a method to predict outbreeding depression and know that it works, and the second was to have a good quantitative measure of the likely benefits of such outcrossing. Uh, Dick, it's been lovely to have you here. Thanks for joining us today. It's been a pleasure, Rochelle. Thank you for your pleasant interview. If you want to learn more about Richard Frankham or his work, we'll have a couple of links for you in the show notes for this episode, which you can find on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders. Ryan Bromsgrove is our promotions manager. Our social media manager is Chelsea Butler. K.O. Myers updates our website. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. Ed Haynes is our guest coordinator. We get research help from Josh Witten. The show is edited by K.O. Myers and Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders, Marie-Claire Shanahan, and me, Desiree Shell. Desiree Shell